Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 26. We are nearing the end of Acts, and I'm excited but also sad to see it go, but it will be great to move on to something new to focus on. But the book of Acts has been such a blessing to us. And as you're flipping there, for the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at Paul's legal troubles as he's dealing with accusations from the Jews. And in the text this morning, we see Luke, who is the author of Acts, retelling us the account of Paul's testimony before King Agrippa. And what's very interesting is that Paul is testifying before this king particularly, because King Agrippa II was the latest of the Herod dynasty, and he would be the last Herod to meddle with Christ and his followers. His great-grandfather was King Herod, who feared the, uh, the birth of the Christ child and murdered all the male children in the vicinity of Bethlehem. His, the great-granduncle of Agrippa II had murdered John the Baptist, and his father, Agrippa I executed James and imprisoned Peter and was eaten with worms as punishment for allowing the people to worship him as God right here in Caesarea where Paul is on trial. So there's a long multi-generational pattern of people persecuting, this, this family persecuting and pushing back against Christ Jesus, his gospel, and his kingdom. So this kind of sets the stage for us as we go to scripture. And as we go there, we're going to focus on three things today. The first one is going to be Paul's trouble. The second one will be Paul's message. And the third one will be Paul's boldness. And we'll see how we too will have the same troubles, the same message, and we need the same boldness of Paul. So with that, if you have your Bibles, we are going to read through the entirety of Acts chapter 26. Don't worry, I know it looks long, but it takes about two and a half minutes to read through. And then we will make some observations for you and then get you home to your turkey if you're eating today. So starting in verse 1, so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate, fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially, sorry, I changed it early, because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope uh, in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And from hope I am accused by the Jews, O King." Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in imposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." 
And in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, Lord, uh, he, and, the, uh, and the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have, uh, I've had the help that comes from God, and I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And he was saying these things in, de in his defense. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persecuted. Things have escaped his notice, and this has not been done in a corner. The last stretch. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul in short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these change, chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and all those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing, uh, nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. So what we see... Is oh did I oh sorry was I behind on you guys I apologize so first off we see Paul's trouble there is a certain sense of irony in the story of Paul as we go all the way back to Acts seven and eight and we watch what happens in his life up to this point. We know both from this text today and previous texts and his words earlier in the book of Acts that Paul caused all sorts of grief and trouble for the church as detailed here between verses 9 and 11. And that he was convinced that he as a faithful Jew and Pharisee had to resist the Jesus of Nazareth and he did so in Jerusalem. He punished all the Christians and cast his vote against them to their death. He even held the coats at the stoning of, of Stephen so they could maybe get a better throw in. Uh, uh, to kill him. He hated Christians. So understand that the Apostle Paul was no friend of yours if you were alive back in the early church. There is a very technical Greek word that's used time and time again to describe Paul that's translated to English as jerk. 
okay? Paul, thank you, got the joke. Paul was a jerk. He harassed, he threatened and arrested Christians, and he approved of their deaths. Paul was a really bad guy, and the church feared him. We read about that earlier in Acts. He was not our friends, and he would do everything he could do to shut down the spread of the gospel. But this is where things get really interesting, because when Paul violently opposed and persecuted the church, as long as Paul was doing that, Paul had no problems. He faced no problems. He wasn't being falsely accused in town. He wasn't being imprisoned as he persecuted the church. When he went town to town to throw Christians in prison and threaten their lives, he never once caused a riot that broke out in the whole city. He never once was asked by the prominent leaders of the city to leave and never come back. He went around threatening Christians. He never once was beaten up and left for dead on the outskirts of town. He never got kicked out of the synagogues for threatening Christians. Paul did didn't have a worry in the world as long as he opposed the church. He he was, as we might say, carefree. Now, if we do back up for a moment, we do know in reality, with everything going Paul's way, if you will, he was actually in major trouble. He was in major trouble with God because he was dead in his sins. Paul had rejected the Jewish Messiah, the Messiah that Israel's been waiting for, the Savior. So he stood condemned in his sin. But that all radically changed through an experience with the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus. Paul recounts his own conversion in this story in verses 12 to 18. He was knocked off his horse, and this bright light shone around him. And he said to the light, who are you? And the light responded, I am Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus tells Paul that by persecuting the church, he's persecuting Jesus the Messiah, and that he appeared to him for this purpose, that he was going to appoint him as a witness and a servant of Christ. And Jesus commissioned Paul to go out and do these things. And this encounter with the resurrected Christ changed everything for Paul. He no longer opposed Jesus. He no longer opposed the church. He became a servant of Christ and one of the greatest theologians and church planters of the first century. It was Paul who was appointed by Jesus to take the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And it was Paul who had proclaimed the forgiveness of sins that is found in only one name under heaven, and that is Jesus. And what's so funny about this is from this point on, Paul would face nothing but trouble. Right? I mean, like, persecute the church threaten Christians, kill people, no problems whatsoever, but preach the gospel, follow God, and all of a sudden Paul's life is invaded with trouble. It's really interesting. The principle here that I think we need to be aware of is if you oppose God, the world will be fine with you. If you oppose God and his world, the world uh, and word the world will have no problems with you whatsoever. If you oppose God and you embrace evil or even be indifferent to evil, like, yeah, I know that's wrong, but I'm not going to say anything about it, the world's fine with you because you're just a Christian who shut up and stayed inside the building, right? They don't care about that. But if you seek to honor God, the world will oppose you with its full force. The dynamic is visible right now in our lives with every major cultural issue, be it LGBTQ, be it abortion, be it whatever, 
we are facing oppose God, the world's fine. Turn a blind eye. Change what the Bible says. The world's fine. Honor God and the world will be against you. This is the dynamic that the psalmist identifies and cries out and laments about of this confusing reality. The psalmist says, why do the wicked prosper? Right? Why do the wicked prosper? Because you got this person, and maybe this is you. You're trying to honor God. You're trusting him with all your faith. You're obeying him to the best of your ability. And then you look over at your neighbor who hates God, who's a pagan, who's constantly living in opposition against God. And his kids listen. They're always on the bus on time. They're never getting sick. He has this nice car that never breaks down. And he has a great retirement plan and a great house. And here I am with this piece of junk car that's not starting for the 15th time. And my kids are always sick. They're lunatics and they're running around the house never listening to me, and nothing's ever going right. Everything's just always going wrong. And we say things like, I'm honoring you, God. Like, my life is yours, but it's falling apart. And this dude next to me who could care less, it seems like he's prospering. What's going on? And I had this same battle. This isn't hypothetical for me. When my father died, I started to compare other people's dads to my dad. Like, are you kidding me? So-and-so's dad is a sinner who's a drunk and you let him live? But you kill my dad who, was an, who honored you, who served as a pastor? Those are real thoughts I had. Those are real thoughts. Because grief will take you to the darkest places. And will make you think of these horrible things. And the psalmist talks about that. And, and if I know if I were to open up the mic to many of you, you could share who are going through hardships or have went through major hardships that you've had these questions as well. And maybe you've had similar ideas in your mind as well. Why me, God? I love you. And I do nothing but serve you. Why me? Why do the wicked prosper, but yet I suffer as your faithful servant? What are we to make of this? Why is it that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? And sorry, my intent today is not to answer or resolve that question for you, but just to raise it so you can fit, sit in that. But we are going to tackle this question. Just a quick pop out here. We are going to jump into revival after this, but for many different things through prayer, I've, I'm going to push that off and we're going to go through a mini-series on tough questions in the Psalms. And we're going to wrestle with this. What do we do with this? And these trials and these negative experiences, they might happen in your life, and they might come right next to your conversion. So you've been living fine, your life has been fine all up to this point, and you've been doing everything you pleased, and nothing's been bothering you, and then you become a Christian, and then troubles unleash. And you might think, why did that happen? I thought once I got right with God, everything around me would get right as well. But the opposite's true. Once I got right with God, it's like everything's just been conflict after conflict after conflict. And some of you, that's your experience. That's your story as a believer. And sometimes this happens later on, and it's multiple seasons upon multiple seasons. And maybe you're here, and you've been a Christian for years, and you're doing your best to honor God. You're trying to seek Him and obey Him all things, and you're watching all the people around you who could care less about God, and they seem so carefree. And life is incredibly difficult for you. And you're wondering, what in the world, Lord, is going on today? And you're not alone when you experience that. We clearly see the pattern here in, in Paul's life. He persecutes the church. He's fine. 
He obeys Christ. He gets suffered. He suffers and he gets beat up by the people around him. And we need to remember this, that it's better to be in trouble with the world than to be in trouble with God. Okay? It's better to be in trouble with the world than to be in trouble with God. We are warned by this by the Apostle John in 1 John 2.15. He says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, guess what? The love of the Father is not in them. That's dangerous. Friends, if you follow God and seek to honor and obey him, do not be surprised when suffering is at your doorstep, when you face troubles. Do not be surprised when you find yourself at night grieving and asking God, why do the wicked prosper? Because this was Paul's trouble, and it's often our trouble as well, which leads us to Paul's message And it's Paul's message which caused Paul's trouble, okay? It was what he was teaching, which was a direct correlation to his problems. Paul had a very particular thing that he went around proclaiming to these communities and to anyone who would listen. We see this in verse 6 through 8 with Paul saying that he is on trial because he hopes in the resurrection of Christ Jesus and uh, 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 and he believes in the forgiveness of sins. And then in verse 9, if you remember, after he talks about his conversion, he tells the king that he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but he went around proclaiming this good news to those hearing that they should repent, that they should repent and turn to God because the message that the Jews tried to seize him was that Christ was able to forgive sins if they repented and turned to him. We see this in verse 21. So we have this snapshot from about verse 6 to about verse 21 of the essence of what Paul is proclaiming, the message that was getting him in trouble. And it's the same message that we're called to teach that will also get us in trouble. And it has two parts to it. The first part is the resurrection of Christ. And now we detailed this a little bit more in detail last week. So if you missed that, go watch it. It's good. Uh, And then the second element of his sermon is, or his message is repentance. Jesus was raised from the dead as it was promised in the Old Testament. And I want you to notice here of how uh, Paul uh, appeals exclusively to the Old Testament. Now, yes, the New Testament wasn't fully written at this time. but But as he was looking at the Old Testament, he's saying that the hope of Israel is resurrection. Paul is looking at the Old Testament saying that the hope of God's people has always been resurrection. That's what Israel is waiting for, the resurrection. This means, and this is important for you to know, that the resurrection was not a new idea that Christians just came up with and implemented in the New Testament, even though we're accused of that. It's not true. The resurrection is an old idea that has been promised for centuries. Let me just point out a few Old Testament texts for you to help direct, uh, uh, that are direct promises of, uh, uh, of the resurrection. And then I'll just show you a, a few others that you can write down and read at home. But here are two of my favorites. Ezekiel 37, 11 to 14. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy, say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, what does he say? I will open your graves, 
I will raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will, I will place you in your own land. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Daniel 12, 1 to 2. And at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has char- who is charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. As many of those who sleep in the dust, okay, buried in the ground of the earth, shall awake. This isn't the walking dead, okay. They shall awake, some to everlasting life. Some to heaven, and some to everlasting contempt. Some to hell. Does that not sound like resurrection to you? And Paul's proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus should not have been a surprise to the Jewish people or a new idea because resurrection has always been their hope. It's been promised to them. Some other examples that you can read are right there if you want to write them down. And this, this encounter kind of reminds us of Jesus who rebuked Nicodemus. Remember that story? Nicodemus was a teacher, a leader in his community. He had some questions. So he goes to Jesus at night. I call him Nick at night. And he goes to Jesus at night with some questions. And Jesus rebukes him. Because he says, how can you who's a teacher of the law not know these things? Like, that's embarrassing. How do you not know these people and you claim to teach these people? How is that possible? And this is what Paul is essentially saying here. How is God's people surprised by the claim of resurrection? This is the central hope of their belief. It's not an obscure teaching that was taught in a random set of Judaism. But then Paul appeals to the sovereignty of God as well in verse 8. Look what he says, just as a reminder. He says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? It's a good question. Let me paraphrase if I was Paul. I would say it like this. This is promised in the Old Testament. But for the sake of argument, let's just say that there was no promises over all of Scripture of the resurrection. Okay? Fair enough. I'll play your game. Let me ask you this. Is it beyond God to have the ability to raise the dead? Even if God promised never to do so, like not that he would never, that it was never promised that he would do it. If God is God, then certainly resurrecting someone from the dead he, uh, is not beyond his power or his ability. Because if it was, he would not be God. So how can you say you're a faithful Jew who trusts in the scripture and then re- uh, reject resurrection? How do you reconcile those two beliefs? Jesus Christ was in fact crucified, church, in our place for our sins. He was raised from the dead both literally and physically. And on the third day, according to scriptures. According to what scriptures? It's not a trick question. Old Testament scriptures. Death and resurrection. What's your hope as believers? Death and resurrection. Understand how important and vital this is. The entirety of the Christian hope and message, gospel, the forgiveness of sins and our salvation, all rest, all rise and fall on the historical reliability of the resurrection of Jesus. Everything, everything we believe, 
everything we hope for, proclaim, all boiled down to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, if Christ has not been raised, well, guess what? Our preaching, our faith is all in vain. Our faith is futile. And guess what? We would also still be in our sins on our way to hell if Christ has not been raised. So Paul does not say if Jesus rose... He's not just some kind of like liberal church who's going to go, well, maybe Jesus rose, maybe he didn't. It's just the concept of the resurrection and how it makes you feel. That's what matters. He didn't say if Jesus rose. That's for the theologians to debate about. We're just going to worry about your authenticity as a person. If Jesus is still dead, that's okay because it's all about our morals and our traditions, not about the resurrection. The resurrection's really not that important. Is that what Paul said? No, Paul unequivocally says, if Jesus is dead, Christianity's a joke. All of you sitting here, you're wasting your time. It's that fundamental. If Jesus is dead, he is not your Lord. If Jesus is dead, you are not forgiven of your sins. If Jesus is dead, Scripture's false. And we're to be pitied the most. And we have to accept these terms because what we believe is Jesus is not dead. Do you believe that? It's better than a free turkey. (laughs) He was raised for you by the power of his father. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. And it's because he was crucified and raised that we must repent and believe. It was because he was crucified and raised that we must put our faith in Jesus. It was because he was crucified and raised that we must acknowledge his rule and reign over all things, including me and including you. It's because he was crucified and raised that we must confess our sins and receive his complete forgiveness. It's because it was only Jesus who died in your place so that you could have salvation. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not any false Christ that's preached in this world. It was Jesus of the Bible who died. And only Christ has been raised from the dead so that you might be raised from the dead as well. And only Christ has been given all authority on earth and heaven. So we must confess that Christ is Lord. And I know in our lives that we tend to face hardships and trials that tend to come like the waves. They keep crashing upon us. And a lot of questions will arise out of those. But I want you to consider this in light of all of your suffering. Past suffering, present suffering, and the future suffering that will come. If the Father has the wisdom and power to raise Jesus from the dead, do you not think that he also has the power and wisdom to answer all of your questions and give you answers that you have never considered before? Do you think that the Father who raised the Son may also have the wisdom and knowledge and power to make sense of all those things that seem confusing to you right now? Do you think that the Father who had the power In wisdom to raise the son, he too might have a power, a power that is greater, far greater than all those desires that you're struggling with right now. Do you see how the resurrection changes everything? If he really was crucified and raised, it must, it will, sorry, change the way we relate to our questions in all of life. Now, you might still have questions of why. Those are important to ask. But you are bringing those questions to a Lord who suffered and rose for you. Think of the power of that. 
we hear that as Christians, and I think it loses its power. That is one of the most powerful doctrines that we have. We had a suffering servant who suffered for us, and that he can sympathize with us in our pain. And we bring it to a resurrected Lord who has the power over all things. Paul's message is the same as our message today. It is Christ crucified, resurrected from the dead, and forgiveness of sins is found in only his name. No one else. Today, there may be millions of things that seem uncertain to you in this life. And the one thing that you and I can be absolutely certain to of this morning is that Christ died and he rose for you. He died and he rose for you. He is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your trust because, friends, he was raised. He can handle your questions. He can handle your hurt. He can handle your pain. And he can answer all the tough questions of why that your spirit produces. This is why Paul's message, this was Paul's message, and this is our message and it was a message that got Paul in much trouble. And it's a message that is going to get us in lots of trouble as well, which is why we also need Paul's boldness. Let's look again real quickly at verses 28 to 29. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? I love that. <laughs> and Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Agrippa knew exactly what was going on, that Paul was trying to convert him. He wasn't like, hey, maybe here's a casserole dish. I hope he knows I'm a Christian. <laughs> you know, he wasn't just trying to like flirt with the idea of sharing his faith. Don't get me wrong, casserole dishes help. But uh, uh, <laughs> Paul says, I want you to all be Christians just as he is, but not the persecuted, chained-up kind of Christians, but free, liberty kind of Christians. I want you to be those. So here we have Paul, a Christian, sharing his faith in the middle of a legal hearing, and he has a genuine hope that the king or the judge, in a sense, would become a Christian. What do you make of that? Paul was not out of line for calling the king to convert. That might just be our Canadian understanding. He was doing exactly what he was told to do back in Acts chapter 9, 15, saying that he was to carry the name of Christ before kings, before Gentiles, and the children of Israel. Do you see Paul's boldness? I just think about this for a moment. His life is on the line. Agrippa could order his death in the snap of a finger. But yet he's not worried about his life. He's not worried about his legal merit that he could stand on because they clearly see he's innocent. He's worried about their salvation. It's beautiful. And you need to know this. Understand that the call to the disciple the nations that we all have on our lives knows no bounds. Let me make it a little smaller for you. The call to disciple drum heller knows no bounds. No one is exempt from the call to repent and trust in Christ, including that neighbor who keeps cutting his lawn a little too short next to yours. Okay? No one is spared from the offer of radical love and grace that is found in God. No one is out of bounds when it comes to the free offer of forgiveness of sins. Nobody. The good news of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection is the good news to all the nations. It's the good news to all people. All people. 
It's good news for all people regardless of their gender, their race, their class, their socioeconomic status, political involvement, or affiliation. It knows no bounds. Paul was bold, and he was unapologetic about his genuine hope that King Agrippa would convert. So he preaches the gospel to King Agrippa, and we ought to be no different in our hope, in our zeal, and in our passion and desires with our boldness. We should long for our leaders, or we should long for our neighbors. We should long for our relatives and our friends to come to Christ. We should long for this. We should desire this. And we should seek this with everything we are. Paul wanted King Agrippa to be saved. And it's abundantly clear. And we ought to genuinely desire the same thing for others. We should be praying for our prime minister. Yes, even the current one. And local leaders and our friends and our relatives and our neighbors. That they would come to the saving knowledge of Christ Jesus. We should not hide these things or be embarrassed about these things, but we should pursue these things. Why? Because Paul did. And what was Paul doing? Paul was just doing what Jesus commanded him to do. And it's the same command we have. Disciple the nations. Baptizing them and teaching them to obey. Teaching them to obey. This is what we should be busy doing as a church. We should be busy praying for Drumheller, praying for our leaders, praying for Alberta, praying for our leaders, praying for Canada, and praying for our leaders, and actively at the same time sharing the gospel in front of them every day and living it in front of them unapologetically as we pursue their salvation. And may we have some troubles along the way? Yes, we will. But may we never compromise our message and may we always have the boldness that is found only in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, I praise you and I thank you, O Lord, that you are a mighty and great God. We praise you, Lord, because of your holiness and your sovereignty and your care, O Father. That we come to you boldly, as the book of Hebrews says, and we can confidently stand in your presence and bring our wise why, Lord? And God, the question of why doesn't scare you. But Father, we thank you and we rest in your peace that all things are in your hands. Father, as we live out our Christian lives in this world and as it becomes progressively harder to do so, Father, may we stand on the thing that does not change and that is you, O oh Lord. As the, as the world uh, ships and shapes and, and the sands of life, Lord, pull those to and fro. May we have our salvation and security anchored on you. And God, may we throw the lifelines out to those around us, preaching the gospel boldly so that they might hear, that we may not write off anyone, especially being in a small town. There's so much history. Lord, may we not write them off, but share your loving grace with them. We ask all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.